Hello, wonderful beings. Welcome back to the TFC Audio Project. On this episode of Shop Talk, Mike and I unpack the concept of embodiment. We talk about what the term means, how it's shaking up the world of neuroscience, and we talk about practical examples where our body and our mind affect each other bidirectionally. I was definitely fascinated when researching this one, uh, and it was sort of something I had very little awareness about before Mike suggested um, covering it. So really enjoyed the conversation with Mike, and we hope that you find the information useful in your own life. This episode of the show is brought to you by TFC's global health community called Beam Tribe. We feel that the pursuit of health is a team sport, and our mission with Beam Tribe was to create a global community that connects like-minded humans who value making progress every day on their health journey. The platform is loaded with videos uh, crafted by our Beam team where we share our experience and you know give practical information when it comes to things like overcoming injuries or creating a daily meditation practice, um, resolving back pain, how to restore an arch if you've been told you have flat feet. So all these different health concepts, trying to explain them in simple terms and then give people practical tools to be able to implement and make changes because we feel that only you can take care of your issues. Only you can fix yourself, but you need the awareness and tools to do that. If you head to beamdrive.com, you'll be able to see sample videos of what we've created. And if you want full access, you can join the community. This episode of the show is also sponsored by TFC Shop, your one-stop online store for balance beams, natural footwear, and foot health accessories. If you visit tfc-shop.com, you'll be able to see the growing selection of products that we offer that all help you live a more natural life. Last but, not le- last but not least, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Roasters Pack. If you're into coffee, this unique Canadian company offers a subscription service that gets you fresh beans to your door each month, and they also give you the story behind each of the craft roasters that the beans come from. If you check out theroasterspack.com, use the code FOOT at checkout, you'll get 7 bucks off your first month. That's it for sponsors, let's dig in. Hope you enjoy. It's the TFC Audio Project. Hello, wonderful beings. Nick and Mike here, back for another episode of Shop Talk. And today we're going to unpack the concept of embodied cognition. Uh, Mike suggested the topic to me last week, and it was a treat to research such a sort of potent topic that wasn't really on my radar. So thank you for the suggestion. Um, So embodied cognition is kind of a relatively recent and also exciting hypothesis in cognitive science right now. And it's challenging a lot of sort of current and long-held theories in cognitive science um, and research on the topic in, on embodied cognition from the past 10 years is calling for basically new models and new theories to be created. So, um, you know, I love, I'm sure you can relate to this. I love learning about concepts that make me feel stupid. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I watched the video by, like I was telling you, of George Lakoff, and it's humbling to watch someone on YouTube talk about something as simple as the perception of color um, and how humans interpret color. Uh, like I watched it three times and I was still like, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, so I, I would love to know, even just to start, how did the topic of embodied cognition come on your radar? Like who did you hear it from or what got you interested in even mentioning it as something for us to kind of dive into? Um, I would probably, so you're hearing the term embodiment a lot more in, in like the areas of uh, movement in the movement world. Right. Um, and also in terms of like, physical practices like yoga and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also looked into it from, I've been, I've been really getting into John Verveke's uh, work out of the university of Toronto. And he, he, that's a big part of his, well, he's a cognitive scientist and he, he always right. talks about kind of this new, new age cognitive science, the four E cognitive science or embodied cognition being part of that. Mm-hmm. And he has a really good series out um, on uh, YouTube. If anyone's interested is that the it, sense making series? It's um, it's the meaning crisis. It's right. um, so it's like a fifty part series, and they're like there's like fifty <laughs> hour long lectures. So uh, if you really want to go go deep into this, but he it's it's like not only on this, it's on other things. But anyways, the term embodiment you've been hearing it more. I've been hearing it more and more, and I'm also seeing as I started to learn about it. Uh, I see this in my physical therapy practice and in my own practices and. Um, I've naturally just stumbled upon it more thinking about my own kind of ecology of practices that, mm-hmm. that I do. Um, yeah. yeah so once, once it's in your awareness, it's way easier to spot it in your own life and kind of process and make like identify it. Right. Or be like, Ooh, that that's an element of embodied cognition. Like even before this, we were talking about how I looked over and the door was open. And as I was doing the intro, I kind of like 
stumbled on my word and then you're like that's embodied cognition yeah. <laughs> when the brain gets distracted your your senses distract you from cognitively processing something so yeah it appears way more once you have an understanding of it and it definitely you know we're learning about it even just like um brushing up on it again this morning i was like wow this is this is powerful stuff but you it, i feel like it's the kind of thing where you have to learn a bit about it and then figure out how it fits or comes about in your life and then learn a little bit more because yeah. it is kind of overwhelming so to like one simple way of looking at it before we get into the definitions is like the idea of a mind body connection and that the mind and right. body are like one thing and that's kind of thrown you know you hear that all the time too it's like oh you know everything's connected or like the mind and body are connected or you know uh, that's kind of so obviously I've been thinking about that for a long time as a physical therapist, how like somebody's thoughts can affect their pain and like right. how somebody's movement can affect their emotions and all of this kind of, it's all connected, right? right? How we move, how much we move, what we do. Um, so, so this like mind body connection and embodiment kind of gets at this and, and it, it basically extends the idea that not only are the mind and body connected, but the body influences the mind just as much as the mind influences the body. And the right. body is an extension of the mind. So it's an extension of the nervous system, an extension of the brain. There's no, no separation between the brain and the body. Right. Um, so like our digits are extensions of our brain, right? Our senses are extensions of our brain. Um, you know, so, so this, this thing is like, oh, like we're all like this integrated nervous system that's, that's like one big, like almost like a big brain and brain is confusing because like, no, we only have a brain in our head. But um, before, like you say, uh, Descartes in the 17th century and a lot of thinking that, that it kind of remains today was almost treating the mind and body as like separate. Yeah, it's the like, dualist standpoint where yeah. it's like the, the brain is where it's at and the body is just this peripheral meat suit that we have yeah. um, that plays a passive role in listening to the command center. And, exactly. and I feel like embodied cognition is saying, well, no, actually... Uh, the command center is distributed throughout the entire body and the actual what was thought of as the peripheral um, mechanical part of, of our of our being is actually just just as powerful in helping with cognitive processing as yes. the actual brain or the neural matter. Um, mm -hmm. And it's funny when you say neural matter, it's like you have that everywhere. So it yeah. shouldn't be that much of a surprise. But I think, uh, yeah, and I've heard in circles like body, the term body mind where yeah. you, they literally just say it together as something to sort of signal that there is an integrated whole and you can't actually help one without helping the other. And you, you know, like I think it's really easy to look at the body um, even f through physical therapy school. If you don't really take the learning journey further, you can look at the body as just like, okay, this is a thing that is independent and needs to be worked on. But when you, you know, even um, we'll talk about complex um, pain presentations like chronic pain, you can't separate the two. They're mm -hmm. intricately intertwined. And by trying to address one without the other, you're never going to make progress. No, exactly. And you're not going to be the, your, your cognition, cognitive capacity is not going to be where it should be without being embodied and without actually paying attention to all this information you're getting from your body and, and all of this stuff. So it's like, we almost put, we were saying before, like we kind of dismiss the body and kind of, you know, it's like, oh, you, you know, work oh you work out or you you know um do you you meditate or you go into like cold you know cold plunges and stuff it's like oh that's that's cool um but it's like you know i'm here learning about important stuff um and it's like well no that's that's the important stuff as well that's the same thing you learn right. so much about your your mind from doing physical things as well mm -hmm. so, so that's important there's no disconnect right so maybe a good place to start is uh defining uh, embodiment and cognition separately and then kind of riff on embodied cognition and what that e what that term even means yeah um, and different interpretations of that so I have you know embodiment basically from the definitions I was looking at this morning is just a tangible or visible form of an idea quality or feeling so it's basically just bringing something abstract into physicality doesn't actually doesn't need to necessarily mean the human body but embodiment just means something abstract like an idea is manifesting into a tangible or a visible form yeah because embodiment can mean like bringing a concept into a picture on a computer that's the like that's a visible form of that concept yeah um, and yeah. when applied to humans it would it would be like you know this person is an embodiment of right uh, health for example yeah like it's like a living walking example or representation of health or whatever their embodiment so right. it's like that deep manifestation like 
uh, as a whole part of them. It's like, uh, yeah, so that's that would be embodiment. And then like embodying calmness, even yeah, someone who is embodying the, a state exactly. of calm. A calm is a is a is an abstraction of a state or a concept. But someone who is embodying calmness is someone who is acting or being a visible artifact of the state of calm. So it's like from body to mind to to the muscle tension to blood pressure to everything that's part of calm, whatever calm is, they're right. embodying that. Exactly. So. All the different elements that fit under the banner of calm. Like they're so I think it's really important. We kind of just gravitated towards starting with definitions, but I was talking to Jay Nera and he's like when you listen to some philosophical talks, people hate listening to them because like half the time they're talking about definitions. But oh, yeah. I think definitions are so important because if we just talk about a word or a concept without actually getting common ground to what we feel, what our individual perspectives are in terms of that meaning, we might be having speaking different languages without realizing Not it. Not knowing what we're talking about in terms yeah. of embodiment. In but this just, case. And just as a base of uh, base foundation for a good conversation about a topic, I think it's really, I think it's cool that we just gravitated towards that because yeah. I think it's important. So that's embodiment. And then cogn- you have the definition of yeah. cognition. So cognition, cognition is uh, the mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through, thro- through thought, experience, and the senses. Hmm. So it's the kind of process of acquiring uh, knowledge and understanding um, related to kind of our thinking and about the world and, and such. So like cognitive processes would be things like thinking, knowing, remembering, judging, Making meaning of things, understanding things. Problem solving. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, one thing I read too is that higher level functions of the brain, um, they also encompass things like language or imagination or perception perception or planning. Like those are all, um, fit. I, I would say, fit under the, the definition of cognitive process, cognition, really. Yeah. So, so body, so like embodiment, physical, cognition, um, not necessarily thought of traditionally uh, like they're concepts right they're not um yeah and i guess embodied cognition is then the blending of those two things yeah for example like cognitive our cognitive capacity is way way greater and more complex than any other species that exists that we right. know of right so um that's kind of like where we shine so it's almost like oh this is some special thing that's like not like any other animals but as we're going to talk about it's like well no it's just an extension of that and it's connected with all the other animal things that are a part of us yeah and it's almost when you get a broader definition of cognition you look at embodied cognition uh as using the body and the environment as part of cognition it's like you realize okay we have bigger brains and we have deeper cognitive capacities for high level processing but animals use probably way more embodied cognition that is just innate to them. So they don't like to interact in a way that allows them to survive and thrive. They don't actually need as big of brains because they get so much of their cognition sort of from the environment or from their bodies. So it's, it's interesting. It's like they're more body driven and we've sort of become started to alienate the body to focus on more of the cognitive stuff, but it's coming at a cost. It's a rich vessel of information that, it, and if we don't pay attention to it, it actually affects our cognitive capacity negatively. Mm-hmm. So like you say, like animals have to rely on it because they don't have as much of a cognitive capacity. But yeah, the, the, the idea of embodied cognition is cognition is shaped by aspects of the entire body of the organism, including the motor system, perceptual system, emotional system, and interactions with the environment like we just talked about. Yeah, and what I like that you said at the start there is that embodied cognition is sort of the idea that the mind is not only connected to the body but and, and influencing the body, but the body is actually influencing the mind. That's huge. That's a big one, and I think that's part of what's shaking things up, I think, in uh, cognitive sciences is, is the degree to which that's happening. It's like, okay, we know that that's happening because without a body, you can't, like, you can't do a whole lot, right? Uh, like a baby... If a baby was not able to move, it would have a really hard time learning movement patterns, even though we have these innate models um, sort of built into our cognition as human children, you still need to move and and actually embody certain uh, actions interacting with the environment in order to create the cognitive capacity for movement. Yeah. So it's like you can't, you know, but but I think people are realizing that the body affects the mind way more than we thought. Oh, Exactly. Um, and I think one of the key things maybe we'll talk about um, that will kind of guide us through this as well is, is that problems can arise when we become disconnected from our physical bodies and all of the rich information that we could be getting from them. 
um, and also disconnected from the environment in terms of like now we're um, spending less time in like natural environment. And even like as we see right now, current times, we're, we're socializing less and being right in it like in the presence like it's like that embodiment like that's a perfect example being in a room with somebody is completely different than obviously texting them even talking on the phone and even skyping them right just the, the feeling this the everything you can see about them and feel from them is like completely different you're, it's like not even in the same category of information that you're picking up from somebody mm-hmm. so as we start to lose this more and more potentially um that affects our our you know sh- social abilities and our cognition fr- from there too that's interesting because you're, I mean, if I talk to you over Zoom, even if we have a video component, I'm effectively communicating with, I'm, a com- I'm communicating with a computer, not a human. The, the computer is generating a disembodied model of a human and giving me a model of a human through like pixels, really is yeah. what it is. But I'm not actually... 2D representation. Right. I never thought about uh, that. Of a human. And, and you can see like, you know, you can, if you have good... Um, a good camera you can see some you can see some things like their facial expressions right. but it's just still it's not the same like I, i've been doing like physical therapy uh, sessions sometimes virtually and it's the di- the difference between a, a, a virtual session and an in-person session is just night yeah, and day it's so it's um that's a key example of it too yeah and I, I think um one part of the hypothesis of embodied cognition that i think seems a bit radical is that the brain is no longer the sole resource that we have available to us for problem solving. Yes. Right. We always think, oh, to solve problems, you're using your brain. Your brain is is what's the chief source of energy and, and is what's running through the models that allow you to solve problems. But what, what uh, embodied cognition says is that, well, actually, your body is a big role in problem solving. You, the environment that you're interacting with is a big role in solving a problem, right? If, if you can't remember something, like here's a little example if you can't remember something and then you smell a certain smell and it brings about a memory you couldn't retrieve well there's something there because the environment now was the chief player in unlocking a cognitive process not your brain yes so it's like very it gets really it's really interesting but it's so hard to wrap your head around sometimes some of these concepts but it's it's a good challenge no exactly and and then so next i think let's bring it through um, in a second, some examples that people can understand, um, you know, and some ideas that, that make it very obvious, like the one you just said, like smelling something and how that changes your thinking or you're remembering things and then it right. sparks your memory. Um, one thing I want to add before we get into that is just how health, um, and how we treat health. Um, and we, we kind of ignore this embodied cognitive element, but also how embodied cognition applies to health. Like we, we treat mental health problems almost like, just like a mind problem. Well, we, we literally label them as like only mind related yeah. problems. <laughs> and we don't take account like what's the state of their body? What are they doing right. with their body? Are they connected with their bodies? Yep. Um, you know, do they exercise? Do they eat well? All of the other things that feed into their body processes and the information that's giving them. Um, and then we treat physical problems as, you know, uh, physical problems and not mind problems. Again, right. um, pain problems and, and physical problems and and all these other things are, are pro, like, there's a heavy mind component to all of this as well. Yeah. So, or, or whatever it is. Um, so it's like this disconnect between separating things out in health, as we've talked about in previous podcasts. Right. Body cognition applies to that. Yeah, and that disintegration between the way that we view things. Like, there's nothing wrong with viewing the mind and body um, as separate in terms of an abstraction to better understand each one independently. Mm-hmm. But you have to wrap that back into the fact that they're interdependent on each other or else it doesn't matter how much better you try and get at treating the body as just a body, you automatically hit a ceiling. And same thing with the mind. With how much you can do, if you do not acknowledge and actually take into account the integration of both those things as codependent, not just like entity one and two, it's like, they're half of one entity and they have to be looked at together in order to have a, I think a sustainable solution to all problems needs to consider heavily the integration of both those things. Prime example of that is like, we all know the studies are out, um, exercise and mental health, (laughs) right? Somebody like literally just goes and like runs down the street and like moves their body more and their, their mind changes, right? Their depression goes down. Like it's better than any pill that we give somebody for, for, for the mental health is like, 
And that's obvious information. And it's free. It, yeah. <laughs> and so anyone like, can oh, do it. <laughs> when I move my physical body around, my mind changes. Mm-hmm. Like that's just a simple example of what we're talking about. And even we don't, even something as simple as um, the connection between the food you eat and your mental health. Yes. Like that, that connection is, seems to be something that doesn't, like when you go in and you have depression or anxiety, I doubt very many clinicians are asking, well, what kind of foods do you eat? Yeah. Right. What are the, what are other patterns that you've noticed between the food you eat and and how you feel and what your emotions are like, or the state of your depression? And, you know, like I started digging into mental health at one point, um, hard and Kelly Brogan's work talks about like, yeah, the first thing you can do with someone who's coming with serious mental health problems is let's review what foods you're eating and see if the foods you're eating are literally directly contributing to the problems you're having with your mind. And so many times it's maybe it's not the goal, the silver bullet to solve everything, but like it heavily improves things when you eat real food. That's just another example of it. Like if you eat something and it makes you feel lethargic, semi sick, upset stomach, guess how you're going to be thinking, right? right? You're not going to be thinking in energetic ways. You're not going to be coming out with, with insights and, and new ideas when you're feeling Right, like you're gonna shit. be a slug. You're you're gonna feel. You're gonna like. You're gonna think the way that your body's feeling. Right. Exactly. Um, when you're hungover, there's another prime example of that. Like you drink alcohol the next day, like you even having a couple drinks, and the next day not getting and linking that with sleep too. It's like you're not thinking good thoughts. Like there, people are often feeling down in the dumps, depressed. Yeah. And it's like okay, it's well, a I'm feeling depression. depressed, but it's literally like oh well my physical body got semi-poisoned and I didn't get that restorative sleep that my brain needed. So my body's feeling like a slug again. And then my mind is manifesting that, that feeling too, in terms of feeling depressed, right? Having a depressant and feeling a depressed. Um, So (laughs) it's like, I don't know what happened. I had a depressant and now I feel depressed. I don't know what's going on. Well, yeah, it's like, why am I feeling so shitty? And then it like lasts two, three days and it links into the other day. And like, it's like, oh, okay, well, my, what am I doing? What am I doing to my body? And then um, the opposite can be true as well. Yeah. That's a lot of these examples are actually way simpler than a lot of the stuff I was having in mind, but it's so true. Like food, alcohol, all these kind of things, movement. And I think that's part of the reason that we were not really the world of medicine you know, everything is slow to adapt. Like you said, there's shitloads of research now, but it it's like a freight train going so fast with so much weight that it's hard to kind of, it's like when we realize we need to make a 180 in how we're approaching things, we can't just make a 180 as a blanket or at least people, I think technology allows us to do that now, but there's an adaptation period to where like, okay, when is the physician training going to change so that exercise is the first line of treatment for depression and anxiety uh, or or the food people eat is a significant factor that gets talked about instead of just going straight to, well, let's try these drugs that that modify your neurochemicals. When no, in reality, yeah, yeah. we like we know that that's so limiting in terms of the way it's going about it, and yet because there's so much profits behind it, that is the that is the status quo. Exactly, it needs to trickle into how we actually do things. Um, it needs to become embodied in how we do things. Right. Like, <laughs> um, so that's a no exactly. Um, so I think another great example that I want to touch on is like the concept of interoception, interoception. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just what that is, is because um, it's going to kind of highlight what embodied cognition, it's going to be, it's a component of embodied cognition. Right. Um, and basically what it is, it's a sense of the internal state of the body. And it's basically how the brain is integrating information. It's receiving from all the body and all of its um, physiological states. Um, and, and it's basically a, a representant, representation of the physiological state of the body. Um, so it's, it, it includes things like our heart rate, our blood pressure, our stomach and how our stomach is feeling and our bladder and our, and our temperature regulation and our skin and all of these like our things, breath. Our, our breathing rates, our breathing patterns. So these are all, um, these are all things that are like inter- the internal state of the body and what's going on under the hood and how that's informing um, like, and what we're learning from that, what our brain is getting out of that, um, mm-hmm. because it can tell us a lot. And when people get in tune with their, their, uh, their body and they, their interoception capacity or their ability goes up, um, they can, they can kind of learn and course correct a lot better because they can sense like, Oh, like, yeah, but my heart's going fast. Like, Oh, like it's, it's like a lot of people are very 
Um, and they've linked this to mental health issues too, is lack of interoception is like, there's this disconnect and we, we're not picking up and we're not doing the appropriate things or using the signals that our body are giving us. We're kind of disconnected from the signals that our body's sending us. Mm-hmm. Like we can feel muscle tension and heart rate and breathing rate. Um, but if we're like, ah, oh, and then like you think about a panic attack, right? Like right. I'm an example of like, oh, what's going on? Like I'm not, what's more going on with my body? It's causing my mind to freak out and everything just goes haywire. Yeah, I don't but feel in control. Like, I don't understand why this is happening. So it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so just getting better at, at kind of perceiving and becoming aware of like these, these feelings in your body and that are arising and like what it feels like and, and, and then trying to link them with, with your environment and how you're feeling at the time. It's like, oh, whenever I'm around that person, I, I feel stressed or, or whenever I do this or, um, you know, when I'm going public speaking, my heart starts racing and then mm-hmm. I, I can't do it. So it's like, okay, just all of these things we can learn from them and start to get better at, um, decoding them and then improving them um, and kind of hacking in and improving them. I don't like the term hack, but um, just kind of course correcting mm-hmm. along the way. I really like the term decode because it's like this innate code that we are literally designed to speak that language. We're designed to be to be literate in that code. Um, we've disconnected so much from it that we've lost. I think the term body literacy um, and, and just like literacy in general uh, you know, we typically apply that to language and like, okay, you got to know what the letters are in order to make words, in order to make sentences. And it's like literacy when it comes to movement, for example, is knowing the fundamental movements so that you can then string them together into activities, right? Um, but I think with body literacy, it's like we've forgotten the alphabet of yeah. the body, right? The alphabet is these individual signals that we receive from our body as feedback that are designed to help us make sense of how to solve problems, right? Right. And if you've lost the literacy of even interpreting the basic elemental signals of like, okay, I'm starting to like, even just knowing to tune into your breath rate, your heart rate, your, if you're, if you're sweating, are you shaking? Are you, uh, you know, able to perceive things or is your, your, um, sort of lens narrowing because your body's going into fight or flight or, you know, like being able to reinterpret all these things is very hard to describe. Yeah reinterpret the messages that you these like baseline messages that you're getting from your body right because you can and once you can integrate it then you can actually like you say like you can you, your cognitive capacity improves you can actually you you won't blank in that speech you're trying to give your mm-hmm. you you will get better at doing things you'll get better at socializing picking up other this information on others too right. so you'll be able to see when pe- other people are, are are looking tense or feeling like all of these things and then you know and that feeds right into emotions right these are like baseline drives and then emotions become come into the mix too Mm -hmm. and then they start kind of so a lot of people are very disconnected from their emotions and we've talked about emotional intelligence before right and and that's kind of like these physiological states of the of the body It's, it's biological states associated with the nervous system um so so that's kind of uh basically patterns of physiological activity associated with an experience so like fear, anger, mm. um, joy, happiness, and how like we feel anger, right? In an embodied way. We, well, even we, just people's, uh, how the muscles of your face coordinate yeah. when you're in a state of fear or anger or joy, we express facial reactions as an embodiment of the cognitive process of fear. Of, so it's yeah. like they're interlinked, which is why you can tell when someone's angry or when someone's sad or when someone's happy is because they're embodying the cognitive model of what fear or or joy or happiness is. Exactly. So and then like how that's linked to your cognition, like you say, is like if I start thinking, if I start feeling angry and I'm getting all this emotional neurochemistry um, body language, muscle tension, breathing rate, heart rate, everything associated with what that emotional state is, mm-hmm. I'm going to start thinking uh, that state too. Right. So my, my, my thoughts will become associated with my, how, my, how I'm being embodied in that way. Um, and the opposite is true. If I'm feeling very, very relaxed and everything about my body is suggesting that I'm relaxed and my breathing and heart rate and all of that kind of stuff, my muscle tension, um, then it'll, it'll, predisposes to having more calm open thoughts um, and not a closed rigid fearful or, or like so again that's changing and then the opposite is true if i'm thinking really really calm thoughts that can actually affect my body it's kind of always that two-way street right up and down right so yeah 100 percent. and even like i try and even just thinking of things that i do to try and get me in a more creative mode 
they almost all involve creative movement. Yeah. And it's funny because to stimulate the create the cognitive process of creative um, thinking, I'm using my body to stimulate that, to, to generate a state that permits a cognitive process. That's interesting. So it's like the same with me. Yeah. There's so many directions. You exactly. It's well, that's the whole gestalt of it all. It's like everything is affecting everything from body to mind (laughs) to environment. And the same thing is like, if I, I will think different thoughts, I will literally make, come up with, uh, have insights and come up with better ideas and think better when I go out into nature on a walk and I'm hearing natural sounds versus cooped up in a small space, um, right. With, with, um, construction noises going on outside, (laughs) like, or, or being like, you also, um, if you're picture this, you're, you're downtown New York city in rush hour traffic and you're walking and you're walking home, just the state you're going to be in versus being, um, beside a, a gentle, uh, stream in the middle of a forest, so, yeah. so that's just going to, the environment is going to influence both your emotions, your, in your, like the physiology of your body right. and, and also your thoughts. So, so that's very true. And I think even something as basic as our sense of direction, like if I say, okay, Mike, move forward, that sent that the, the word forward is directly embodied. Like our sense of space or understanding of space is directly embodied into our physical form where we've all sub, subconsciously agreed that this is the front of our body, this is the left side, right side, this yeah. is the back. Like, you can't actually understand or put go forward into a cognitive process of motor patterns unless you have an embodiment of what forward means. Oh, yeah. Like, it's really it gets really into a deep hole there. Because if you were just a brain and your brain was just floating in a little fishbowl, well, up no longer might mean up if your brain is upside down. So it's all embodied based on like your sense of space is derived from the embodiment of 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 your body. Oh, exactly. Oh, and yeah. even like your, you need motor, like everything's dependent on movement, right? So even me speaking to you right now mm-hmm. requires a bunch of muscles into my motor cortex to coordinate movement, to make sounds that uh, basically represent the thoughts I'm trying to say. So again, it's all the embodiment that's allowing me to to get these thoughts across. Um, so I need to use my physical body and muscles and it's not just my brain thinking right now, right? It's, it's my body doing, doing it. It's this connected process. And having an understanding of embodied cognition allows you, like we said, with the, you know, moving to stimulate creativity, allows you to use your body to affect your cognition and also allows your cognition to affect your body. Like it gives you a bi-directional access to changing your state, uh, or changing how your body feels. And I think, you know, kind of sort of touching back for a sec traditional theories in psychology place all of the responsibility of generating our behavior on the brain, mm-hmm. right? That like, that was the big, that has, that, I think that's still the dominant theoretical framework that people are using, which is why embodied cognition is, I mean, the thing about embodied cognition is hard as shit to study, to do a good study, but they've been getting better and better at doing these. And now it's challenging that notion that the brain is the only place that has the responsibility for determining our behavior. And it's a big, it's a big disruption, I think, in, in common thinking. Oh, exactly. And like you, you mentioned that, you know, movement, creative movement and all of that can change our thinking. Um, and I would argue that that's a really good way in is just using movement. Another great way in is using breathing, like we briefly touched on, but breathing is, is not only information like we can learn about our state from our breathing pattern. So if you mm-hmm. do a little like breathing check-ins and you realize, oh, I'm breathing really shallow, I'm using an apical like upper upper chest pattern I'm, or I'm not really breathing at all, I'm holding my breath, um, it kind of gives us insight into what like our state, but also um, you and can into use... into what you're thinking. Definitely. Into what you're thinking too. Um, it also, you can use breathing to affect those things on the back end too. So right. so you can, you can actually be feeling anxious or feeling and then you can you can get in, into a nice calm breathing pattern, um, slow exhales. And, and you, you know, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole field of study on that. Um, but that can actually affect your physiology enough to start calming your whole nervous system down and then calming your thoughts down as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so breathing is a nice, easy gateway into using this, uh, embodied cognition, becoming more embodied actually, because on both ends, it can affect things quite a bit. Very true. And actually even a cool study I read about this morning, that showed the connection between the mind and the body showed that uh, when people think about the future, they actually sway forward. 
And when they think about the past, it caused them to sway backwards. <laughs> and it's this very weird thing where, you know, the suggestion was made by the people who did the study that the sway is caused by the underlying metaphors that we all kind of adopt, that the past is behind us and the future is ahead of us. So it's like these weird things and they're subtle sways, but they replicated it like pretty well. So it's, it's just so interesting how ways that we don't even realize or that might not be super obvious um, when you study them discreetly, can you can see like, oh shit, like it's, we're really affected bodily by what we're thinking. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I think the, the whole like breath as this new, it's almost like in the past maybe five years, breath has become this new realm that we never really paid attention to. And now everyone's talking about the breath for good reason, because it's such a powerful inroad to our cognitive state, to our cognitive capacity. To our um, autonomic nervous system. To our nervous system. Yeah, like it's it's crazy how, how much work has been done in the space of breath and how many breakthroughs there's been to show like, yeah, your the way you breathe really affects the way you think and your your physical state um, mm-hmm. and how how simple it can be to get someone to start to tap in and regain body literacy by using the breath as their first kind of tool. Yeah, their check-in. Uh, it's like a symbolic... Uh, the breath becomes a symbol of like a check-in or, or like uh, a check-in on your state or like s- symbolic of like presence as they'd use it in meditation. So um, it, it's like, that's why I use it is like you check in, check in with your breath and your breath will tell you a lot about what's going on at the time, at the current time. Mm-hmm. And then you can then uh, course correct. So, right. And you uh, can use it to recalibrate because if you yeah. do get some information that you're like, wow, I'm breathing really shallow or I'm, I'm holding my breath. It's like, OK, now I can recalibrate myself by consciously taking a couple deep, calm breaths and then my whole physical state can change. Exactly. It symbolizes like a break in the action to check in with with how the how the whole organism it, like what's going on here. Right. right. A break in the action. <laughs> right. um, and then and then you kind of get back to it. Right. So yeah, it's crazy how big of a difference if you sense like an emotion starting to kind of like swallow you, how mm-hmm. big of a difference it can make to just take a big, deep breath. It's like, yeah, it's it's literally monumental. If someone's about to have a breakdown or about to get really angry. They take a breath, just that tiny space creation. The fact that the calm breath immediately affects your nervous system to reduce the intensity of that emotion is like such a powerful tool. Mm-hmm. And it, like, it, it seems almost too simplistic. The problem is, I think, is that if it's, if you have a deep understanding that allows you to see this simple thing and be like, this works and it's really simple, but it works. If you have no awareness of why it's working or have no understanding of the mechanism of why it's actually, why it can be so simple, but work so well, you almost shrug things off as being like, well, you're, you're a quack. It can't be that simple. So that's the difference between like propositional knowing or like propositional knowledge and like participatory knowledge. And, mm-hmm. and that comes from John Brevaki, but um, propositionally, if you told me that I, I, I could, you could tell me it and I could like think about it, and, but I don't truly understand it or get it, um, participatory in a participatory fashion. If I actually right. do it and I have insight and breakthrough, you have to experience um, it. Yeah. And we've lost a lot of that. So people are just throwing around propositions at each other and we're mm-hmm. saying like, Oh, that sounds, where's the studies for that one? Right. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and it's like, just, uh, there's no studies for that proposition, you know, that it does. But, but again, if you participated in it, you would, you would understand. Um, so it requires different levels of, of, uh, of knowledge. And these are kind of deeper levels of knowledge that are kind of at the, the base of it all. Right. So it's not just little propositions that, that you have to, Oh, I don't believe that there's no studies on it. Right. right. So, well, you don't have to believe it. Right. It doesn't, you, you don't have to believe it for it to be actually be true. You have to be willing to, to, to actually go ahead and experience it. Like I, yeah. I always get frustrated and people say, well, where are the studies to show that natural footwear is better for your foot? And it's like such a, it seems like so nonsensical, but so many people say it that I'm like, okay, I got to try and understand where this is coming from. Because to yeah. me, it sounds like, well, show me the studies, the sky's blue. And it's like, yeah. well, should I have to have studies to show that the sky is blue? Or can you just go outside and see that the sky is blue for yourself and and, and experientially prove to yourself that it's true? Yeah. It's like, well, why don't you just wear some natural footwear and see how you feel? Problem is, if you become disconnected as shit from your body and your feet hurt, yeah. Then you take that as a negative when in reality, it's like, that's the process of adaptation. Well, it's lost ways of knowing. Right. And then, so then we would have to say in that example, 
um, you need to then on the process learn from all these like physiological and, and pain cues and, and, and muscle tension cues and fatigue cues and all mm-hmm. of these. So all the embodied information we would need to also uh, use in our understanding of like the process of it. So right. you have um, to gain literacy. Yeah. So, so that's kind of a prime example as well as like, you know, lost ways of knowing, well, oh, there's no, st- like we seem to like, that's kind of scientism in a nutshell. Um, we need to do side note, a little tangent. We need to do, uh, we need to revisit if you're open to it, the, the topic of science and cause we need to reclaim science. We need to, we need to draw a significant line in the sand to distinguish between junk being called science in actual science so later like we and should do scientism epi- scientism we need to just talk about science because there's so much fuckery with science having starting to lose its significance yeah and it's so important but the oh, way yeah. people are thinking about science has been morphed into something totally different than what i think science is so and we're both pretty fired up when we talk about science so i think we should do another episode later mm-hmm. on no i agree um, um but that's kind of prime example is like uh, and you know, back to embodiment, it's like, if somebody tells you a proposition, but you're, you're, if you're deeply embodied in that embodied information you're getting is, is different than what somebody's proposing. Uh, again, it's not all about the proposition. It's about the, that participation. Right. Um, so, so we can, we can better know ourselves and, and have, um, you know, essentially yeah, better, better self-knowledge and knowledge about the world. If we incorporate all forms of this, um, and we become better uh, attuned with our bodies along the way, mm-hmm. right? So George yeah. Lakoff in, in that free color lecture, which was, it's a free lecture that he gave, I think at Berkeley um, about embodied cognition, but he talks about color. And I found it so curious that he's like, color doesn't exist. Color doesn't, it, it, like all the things that we see in the world, it doesn't exist, right? There are wavelengths which reflect uh, differently, but wavelengths aren't colors, Um and so there's there's these things in our body that create the illusion of color based on wavelengths that reflect but here's the thing men and women have different cone receptors to put together frameworks for color perception so one thing he said that was really funny is like if you've ever argued with someone of the opposite sex about the hue of a color or the color that something is like, well, you might not be speaking the same language because you have different hardware. <laughs> so it's like, even even if someone is connected to, okay, I know what colors are because I know how to perceive, like, pers- I, I've been, I've lived through programming that has told me what colors are and aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you're attuned to your embodiment of the perception of color, and I am, we might, maybe I'm colorblind. So we can still argue. Yeah. And I think we have to just, it seems like in so many cases, people are literally looking for ways to argue when there's so much commonality that can be, that can contribute to a good conversation to expand understanding. And we just don't seem to focus on that. I think social media has facilitated our gravitation towards argument mm-hmm. instead of like meaningful discussion to expand understanding. Oh, exactly. Yeah. It's weird. A couple other things I want to touch on um, that relate to this, this subject mm-hmm. are, pain and then and then maybe some practices i think uh, in terms of why it's important to what can you do what are some practical things that you can start to develop your uh embodiment better and and learn from your body better and start picking up this this information better well why don't we go Um, through pain and then i think um i even want to talk about like the cool application of embodiment in robotics and how that's facilitating uh robotics development and then also uh how our reliance on tech might be reducing our co- like yes we're we're now embodying cognition in and i think that's one of the e's anyway is like we're externalizing our cognition into devices and there's no free lunch there so if something else is doing that work for us if chair does if chairs do the work of holding you against gravity there's a consequence from spending lots of time in a chair mm-hmm. physically um, if your phone holds all of the cognitive capabilities of storing memories um is your brain going to lose the ability and lose the neural connections that typically create those memories? So are we D are we getting dumber because we're giving more work to our computers? Like I want to talk about that too. So let's, let's start with pain. Yeah. Pain is, um, relates well because it's basically signals that our physical body is sending us, um, in terms of a lot of times it's just 
threat detection and it's picking up things that might be uh, potentially causing tissue damage mm-hmm. or actually causing tissue damage. Warning signals. Um, warning signals. It's part of our salience network. So it's kind of picking up things that are potentially harming us. Um, and it's it's supposed to be very adaptive in nature. So pain is there to guide us and help us right. um, and protect us. Uh, but what so happens... The, and for people who don't have a, an understanding of salience, can you expand on like what does salience mean? Salience is like what is um, important or relevant to us. Right. So, so it's like our sense of like, oh, pain is relevant because something's jabbing into my foot. Like that's re- really relevant right now. I better get that out because that could potentially cause harm. So it's part of our salience network. Um, and I, from what I understand, it's like the salience network is super important because we have insane amount of, amounts of input coming into our minds and our senses at all times, right? Yeah. So the salience network is really important because it distinguishes what is important versus what is background noise that I don't need to tune into right now. Cause if yeah. I try and tune into everything, my brain's going to explode and I'm going to be, I'm going to get stuck basically. Exactly. So your salient and, and like optimization of your salience network is, is a key component of, um, of wisdom. If you look into wisdom, um, literature, basically it's, mm-hmm. comes down to like all of these, these things that are like, cause yeah, like you say, you can pay attention to a bunch of shit that doesn't matter. Right. And you wouldn't be very wise. So yeah. you being wise is part of it. And there's one part of it is, is paying attention to the shit that's actually mm-hmm. salient. That's a really um, good way of putting and, it. And, and disregarding the things that aren't very salient to you mm-hmm. um, or in, in, in your case and it, like it don't really matter. So, so that's the thing. Um, it's funny because the body, <laughs> The body sends us pain signals because it's very important from a salience perspective of it's relevant. Oh, yeah. There's a threat. You need to fix this or you can make things worse. And yet we have kind of programmed ourselves to remove the salience from pain and look at it as something unimportant and something to be blocked or hidden or ignored. <laughs> or or we make it of even higher importance and it becomes super salient to us in terms of chronic pain where it's always on our mind, it's always there. Mm. And yeah, we so don't know how to uh, get rid of it. And we don't know what it's trying to tell us. And we don't know that it's highly related to uh, movement, how, you know, fear of movement, not moving, moving too much. We get disconnected on, on kind of what the actual signals they're telling us. And we don't use it as a guide to, to get us back into, uh, regular, regularly scheduled programming, which is non-painful. Then the human body should not be in pain right. all the time because pain is highly salient. And once a highly salient, um, thing comes into our awareness, it's going to just be nagging at us all the time. So chronic pain can have go on for years and years and years and people's lifetimes once they get into it. And then they have this super stimuli, salient stimuli on their mind all the time. And then it affects their thoughts, their cognition and their behavior and their movement and everything else yeah. that, that's and, involved in it. And just think of how big of a cognitive burden it is to have this salience section of your oh, cognition running totally. at all times. Like can't you think. don't have space can't for, think. for other, <laughs> that's crazy. Mm. That sucks. That's when you deal with people in chronic pain and that consumes their life a lot of the right. time. Um, and it's just because this, this whole process has gotten out of control right. and it's become its own thing. So it, it's, um, and I think of that, I think part of that is the people who should be guiding them on reinterpreting the, those signals, right. And what, constructive things can be done to desensitize an oversensitized um, network let's call it from from long-term exposure and misinterpretation of what that what those signals are the guides that should be helping them reinterpret that aren't doing their job of giving people a good understanding of what that pain is right because like chronic pain gets treated through uh understanding and awareness i think not like that that is the way you need to treat it because the person needs to reinterpret those signals and in conjunction with with um movement exposure and like uh physical movement and stuff like that because oftentimes it's tied in with like kinesiophobia or like fear Mm -hmm. of movement or like ultra ultra guarding and like muscle tension developing around a region because they haven't uh, used it and then this feeling of like disconnect and i hear this a lot of time with people with uh frozen shoulders is they they will literally tell you it doesn't feel like my own arm it doesn't mm. there's like their arm it, right. they don't think it's theirs there's a, such a disconnect between mm. the, their their body and their in their mind and their pain that and then like you know coming along with that is they haven't used it to do things day to day they haven't lifted with it they've just kind of kept it and just like ah, put it to the side i don't know what's going on and then it right. hurts more and more and more and so we we're not moving in or using it we're not acknowledging it in our brain is like like it's ours um, so we become super disconnected from it and that feeds into this pain cycle and then we don't know what to do about it and we're caught caught up in it. Yeah, so. when I said 
chronic pain is treated through awareness, I also meant just like the awareness that you need to move. Oh yeah. The awareness that movement is one of the chief tools to reclaim movement. Well, awareness of all the things that, yeah. Right. Of everything, of all the mechanisms surrounding it, of like putting it into perspective, basically. It's like, okay, that's still your shoulder. Uh, If you want to use your shoulder for the rest of your life, we need to begin the process of reintegrating that body part into part of your system. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not just because your infraspinatus is tight or like, (laughs) you know, it's, it's exactly, it's not just one trigger point too with a therapist is like the therapist does a course and it's like, okay, trigger point release on this. And it's like, you just have a bunch of trigger points and it's like, (laughs) you're missing the whole like plethora of like, yes, that's true. But also these all, all these other things that are a tiny piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so pain is a prime example of that. Very true. Um, yeah, let's talk about the other. Well, let's talk about, uh, well, the robotics part is just a small point, but I found it very interesting. And then we could talk about the four E's and just, and I think that ties into uh, reliance on tech and potential cognitive consequences from that. So in terms of robotics, I found it was a really good illustration of um, embodied cognition because when they're creating these robots, when they're trying to create robots that move, there is a physical component to that robot, right? There are components that move, but you need to coordinate them to establish actual movement behaviors, to exert movement behaviors. And I think embodied cognition is making people rethink robotics a bit because there is a massive role that environmental interaction plays from a movement perspective. Like you can't just um, create joints and motors and then plug in algorithms and, and representative models and assume that that thing is going to move well. No. You need an environmental component that bidirectionally sort of um, carves behavior along with the moving kind of robotic part in order for the cognition or algorithms and programming that you've given it to actually work. So yeah. you, it, it's like, it's so funny when we're making robots, we're trying to mimic, we're trying to take what we understand about humans and implement it into a, um into something that moves and can kind of mimic what humans do but as we improve our understanding of how humans actually work as for example we start to take a look at the theory of embodied cognition we're completely changing how robotics work because we're now integrating that into how these things learn and it's i just found it very interesting how it's like okay we're trying to invent robots and without an understanding of embodied cognition you become limited in what you can do just like you're limited in treating the body if you don't understand the connection between our cognition and our bodies exactly and that is one of would have one of the e's we talked about is and it's called 4e cognitive science um and that's just one component of cognitive science the kind of new age cognitive science but embodied is one e okay. what you just talked about is um is partially like embedded. So an organism is embedded in environment, right? Mm. There's no, it has to be, there's like deep connection between the organism and the environment. Um, enacted is the next one. And cognition um, arises through dynamic interaction between an acting org- organism and its environment. So it's actually s- similar to, to, to embedded, but mm-hmm. uh, enacted uh, and then extended. Um, so cognition is extended into the environment too. And right. it's also extended into other things um, like actually that leads well into technology, technology because yeah. cognition can be extended into our phone and it can be extended into other things in the environment. Um, so, and even that brings in like symbols, like when I see, or, or when a Catholic, for example, sees it, sees a cross, mm-hmm. that's, that's like when they're walking by that will, that will start processes in their brain. They'll start right. thinking a certain way. So it, their cognitions extended into what in the environment as well. Right. True. And I think when we talk about extending cognition, there's like almost two realms. You can look at it as using, we'll talk about technology specifically, and let's just use the example of a phone. You can use your phone to expand your cognition. So you can use it to allow you to cognitively do things that you couldn't otherwise do, right? To know everything about everything by pulling up Google is an Mm. extension of your cognition. But I think the, the kind of fine line we're, we're walking on right now is, is in the realm of replacement, so, for example, if I ask you um, for Pat's phone number, you might not be able to spit it off right now, but you can look, you, your, your cognitive capabilities know to guide you to look into your phone to tell you the number. Yeah. So your phone has taken up the environment, your phone is part of the environment, um, has taken up part of your, has extended your cognitive capacity, but you've used that to replace the need for you to remember that phone number. Yeah. And it's like at a certain point, when a chip 
connected to the internet is embedded in our brain what are we are we going to be using that as permission to not use our brains as much right like from an efficiency standpoint like we use chairs to not move as much or are we going to be able to use that to expand what the brain is capable of and it's like one of those things where i know i don't remember things as well because i don't have to anymore i take a note on my phone I have a photographic memory in my pocket, right? Yeah. I can take a picture of anything, anytime and retrieve it anytime. I don't have to use my cognitive powers to do that, but I also need to make sure I'm not disusing my cognitive powers because I have that tool. And, and like those, those same, the same machinery in your brain that is actually responsible for things like short-term memory and, um, and, and this type of thing is it's redundant. So you, by not right. using some of these capacities, you're, uh, it's a dynamic system. So you're, you're kind of detraining these capacities that could be useful in other situations or in other mm-hmm. uh, instances. Um, so now is it's that, like the that's body. kind of like, uh, it, that's an interesting just question. And we could, that's a whole physical philosophical debate is like, is right. that a bad thing? Or is it a, is that just a thing? Or like, I think it could be bad in terms of I think of it's that. neutral uh, until you actually apply it. Right. Like, are you using it to extend or replace? It's kind yeah. of like the body, right? It's like, I think for some people, the, the body has become prim- redundant <laughs> because you sit in a car, you sit at work, you sit, you sit all day. So what is the, and then people want to go and work out and they're like, oh shit, I can't do this. I can't even do a squat anymore. It's like, so, right. Yeah. The physical capacity to move during the day might not be required for survival, but it is needed for you to be able to do other things, which you might not be drawing a connection to. And our cognition Back to body cognition. cognition. So if are we is our cognition devolving or getting worse because we've lost that connection with our physical bodies by not using our physical bodies for sure because we don't have all the capacities we talked about the interoception, um, just the information that we get when when we're out in the environment looking at things and like because we get so much of our cognition from being embodied and because we're becoming less and less embodied is our cognition actually becoming worse as a result of that right so and i would say well that's the thing is like you know chronic pain is a prime example too it's like we're losing this this deep this is like important knowledge about ourselves and like about our like it's adaptive knowledge like so it's like are we losing some of this and we and all of these metrics like mental health and like all these things that are like becoming in like the health crisis these are all things that are becoming worse and worse and worse so are we are we getting shittier in terms of like not only our bodies but also our minds as a result of becoming less embodied over time and is technology making well and is technology like really expediting that process Mm -hmm. because you know we technically don't need to become embodied but maybe we do need to become embodied if we want to become adaptive, uh, healthy um, or organisms that are, that can, right. can actually uh, have a meaningful life. Right. So it's, yeah, it, it's a good question. And I think that's, <laughs> that's important. Yeah. And it's uh yeah, it's like a, like technology to me has always been neutral and it has the ability to bring us in the good direction or a bad direction. Um, and even good and bad are very subjective things based on, what are your goals in life? What do you What do you actually think is important? Um, but I think one of the biggest take homes, whether you're uh, just an average person with a body and a mind, um, or a health professional, because um, obviously we take that lens uh, as people who try and help people with their health. Um, you have to realize that you can, one like your mind and your body are bidirectionally affecting each other at all times, and so if you are having issues with your mind your mental health, you need one of the low hanging fruits is to optimize and figure out where are the holes in my, in my game when it comes to movement in my physical body. Like, what am I eating? How am I moving? How am I sleeping? These are fit. These are in the, I, I think most people consider those to live in the physical realm. How do I they, react to physical stimuli? How do right? I react to being in cold weather? How do I react to being under um, like physical stress? When, how do I react to having to carry something that's past my capacities? Right. These are the, these will feed right into your back into your mental health as well. Yeah. And they affect each other. And same thing. If your body's feeling like shit, then maybe the way that you're even thinking about your body are you thinking about your body as some pain in the ass that's always giving you hassles or are you thinking of it as like this is my vessel this is my like i am in charge i am responsible for why this is in the state it's in and like people just we need to we need to look at uh it's like anything we just need to be more integrative in how we think of everything because if we don't we essentially are 
blacking out part of the puzzle and making that puzzle impossible to solve because we're not even seeing all the pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about some practices maybe to wrap up because we're inching up on an hour. Uh, yeah, so I think a couple that I have written down are just simple practices to maybe improve your embodiment and and improve your embodied cognitive capacity and cognitive capacity um, as a whole are, um, first of all, bringing awareness. We'll get that off the table first. Bringing awareness to things like your state, your your state of arousal, your tension, your muscle tension, your face jaw tension, your breathing pattern, um, your your stress levels, um, and awareness of how the environment changes all of these things. So I would say just clumping that all into improving your awareness. Your self-awareness. Self-awareness. And then from an actual practice perspective, breathing check-ins, like mm-hmm. I talked about before. Use the breath as a symbol to check in with your state your and, and everything else. Use the breath as a symbol to um, check in, but then also use it, use it as a way to actually auto-correct or get you course-correct mm-hmm. things. Recalibrate. So breathing practices, breathing check-ins, uh, having uh, breathing exercises, breathing to calm you down, breathing to ramp you up, using breath because it's this physical embodiment of our state. Right. Um, and even on the topic of awareness, I think to improve, because self-awareness, I started to unpack self-awareness because I'm like, I'd like to be around people who are very self-aware. And then I realized like, if someone asked me what self-awareness is, I wouldn't have a really good answer. So I started to dive into like, what does that mean? Like they, you know, people who manage their emotions well, who don't get angry or sad, like super easily. Um, people who don't take themselves too seriously. People who understand the behaviors they do and tune into how they're behaving so that they can better behave around others. Like so that they can be better at uh, communicating with others, like all these little elements of self-awareness. And I think one of the biggest things to engage in the practice of self-awareness is you have to acknowledge that we live in an era of distraction and that being distracted or seeking novelty is something that we're literally getting trained to do by the technologies and, you know, these billion dollar corporations that essentially have put a slot machine in our pocket. And so I think, one of the practices in order to even seek self-awareness or even do these breath check-ins is acknowledge and be aware that you are subject to massive distraction forces at all times. And you need to sometimes um, shelter yourself, like literally remove access of those things for periods of time, like meditation, yeah. for example. No, You don't meditate while looking at your phone. You meditate by just being with yourself for a period of time, whether it's tuning into your breath or however you want to meditate. But I think we need to acknowledge the distraction in order to facilitate people engaging with the practice of improving self-awareness. Yeah, they go hand in hand. Like part of the getting away from distraction would be go, going for a physical practice could be going for a walk in nature or a, right. like a half day or a full day hike or whatever it is. So that would be just going out into actual into the natural environment and just moving your body and just just basically attuning your body to the environment wherever you happen to be breathing in and all right. of that um so nature walks make packs yeah. with people yeah like we do this all th- like we make plans together because that's how shit gets done and like make a pact with someone hey do you want to go for a walk like once every two weeks in the woods for a couple hours without our phones like find someone that's willing to do that if you think that's important find someone that's willing to do that and make a pact mm-hmm. with them and say we're both going to do this if I try and pooch out, you tell me, no, we scheduled this, like schedule other shit around it. You can spare two hours. So I think making packs with someone to keep you accountable, but also to give you a deeper purpose of why you're doing that than just, yeah. oh, I need to do it because it's good for me. Like that shit helps. Oh, exactly. And simple things like even doing that on a micro scale, like little walks each, each day to check in with your state, combining right. it with the breathing, like I talked about, and like just just getting a sense of like how your organism as a whole is is doing before you get into like the nitty gritty details of the day. Right. Um, and a lot of people just fail to, they're like, Oh, like that was a crazy week. I don't even know what happened. Like, <laughs> um, it's like, okay, each day just like, where are you at? Okay, cool. Like maybe right. I'm not going to schedule that thing tomorrow night because I'm feeling like I'm really overwhelmed right now. Or maybe I just need to rela- So like just getting a tune with what your body is telling you, what your mind's telling you yep. each and every day, um, obviously exercise. So lifting heavy things, exerting yourself, um, on a cardiovascular level challenging your body Um, challenging your body physically is super super important for your thinking Mm -hmm. your mental health and and your cognition um and then things like cold exposure and temperature exposure as well are other great simple tools you you learn a lot about your body uh, and your mind when you put yourself into stressful situations that um that you can easily get out of when you want but you can kind of learn about how you react to things and apply that to other scenarios as well yeah, and experientially shows you firsthand how interconnected they are, right? When you 
um, go and like we went on that cold plunge this past weekend. Like when you first go in, your breath wants to change. You want to freak out. Like your mm-hmm. your mind does these weird things when you challenge your body, and you get to see your programming right because that same thing is probably going to happen when you get in a really confrontational situation. It's the same loops, the same neural circuitry. And so if you can learn to have better awareness and recalibrate yourself to to sort of like through your breath to show your body like it's not a threat, it's okay, it clears up space to actually think clearly about things. And if you can yeah. do that by training, like I always tell people, and one of the best things cold exposure is for training is for confrontation training because you are way calmer, way cooler, way better able to regulate yourself and your emotions and your physical realm. If you've trained doing hard shit like jumping in cold water, you become way better in communication and confrontational high energy situations. And you exactly. And uh, what I find cool is like you can let the you can let the autonomic nervous system do its thing once you realize that like it's got you. Like right. it, it can, like your 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 nervous system is like it's firing up all its thermal regulatory systems. Um, it's shunting blood. It's doing all the things it needs to do to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. And you're in you're in charge of being like, okay, well, I know I'm not going to stay here till I die. So um, <laughs> you're being basically like it's an opportunity for you for you to say, okay, let's just let my body and the the knowledge of my body take hold and do its thing, and then let's clear and uh, ease my mind up so I don't have to psychologically stimulate that stress response in addition to my physiological stress response happening mm-hmm. so so that's kind of the cool because then you can be like oh now i'm present in the world and behind the scenes my autonomic nervous system is doing its thing uh and it's keeping me safe and it's shunting my blood um but right. now i can actually look around and i can actually be calm so that that's where you get to when you when you do that and then and then that applies to other things like um in life so yeah i think yeah. that's a good way of uh of wrapping this up i hope that For anyone listening to this, we hope that conversation was uh, impactful. And, you know, I certainly enjoyed trying to research this and get a better understanding of um, embodied cognition and what it means. And I think once it's on your radar, you can kind of place it a lot more in your life. So thanks for listening and we'll catch you next week.